Hey everybody, I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. And today we are all about those humpback whales. Plus, of course, we have uh, an exciting story featuring many, many humpback whales. So sit back and enjoy as we deep dive into humpbacks. Let's talk about humpback whales. Humpback whales are in the group of baleen whales, so the whales that don't have teeth but instead have these filtering comb things in their mouth, and that helps them to eat their diet of krill, plankton, and small fish. Uh, They eat about 3,000 pounds a day, which uh, Nicole hopefully has pointed out is the same as about two and a half polar bears, which is a lot of food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are about 12 to 19 meters, or about as long as a 10-pin bowling lane, in length and 25 to 36 metric tons, or five Tyrannosaurus rexes. So they're pretty big, uh, but they are definitely, obviously, not the largest baleen whales because that belongs to the blue whales. Um, currently, there's about 30 to 60,000 humpback whales worldwide, and we estimate that that's um, about a third of their historic numbers, um, which, I mean, is a pretty rough estimate, but probably a pretty accurate one. Uh, The main reason for their decline is uh, whaling, but whaling has been banned since 1966, so since then they've, uh, on the IUCN uh, listing of endangered species, they are listed as least concern, Um, and I know here locally we're in Vancouver, and off our coast the humpback whales have uh, had a huge resurgence over the last uh, 20 or 30 years uh, compared to when I was a kid, we, you never saw humpbacks anywhere, and now people see them all the time, which is amazing. Uh, humpback whales are found worldwide in lots of distinct populations. They generally breed in equatorial or tropical areas and then migrate a huge migration up to polar regions. Um, there's one exception to this, so stay tuned for more on that. Humpbacks are known for their knobby heads. They've got these little tubercle tuber tubercles, um, which are like big hair follicles. So you don't think of whales as having hair, but they are mammals. And one of the characteristics of mammals is that they are hairy or like have the potential to grow hairs. And so each one of those uh, knobs has a single hair. Um, They have insanely long pectoral fins. Their pectoral fins are a third of their body length. Uh, They can be identified to individuals using their uh, ventral or underneath side fluke pattern so that when they uh, dive and stick their tails up and you've seen this picture Um, if you're listening to this podcast you've seen a picture of a humpback fluke or some kind of uh, fluking uh, baleen whale and so the patterning on the underside of their tail is how they tell them apart they do amazing acrobatics jumps and breaching and all kinds of crazy stuff and um, their probably most famous thing is uh, their song so Lindsay's going to talk a little bit more about their song. Humpbacks are not the only humpback, uh, not the only whales that sing. Blue whales, fin whales, bowheads, minke whales, um, and now um, they've been recording some right whales. I don't know if that's an official song, but they make noises and all sorts of different kinds of whales sing. But humpbacks are the best studied, uh, probably the first ones as well to be recorded. Um, so everything we say here is going to be about uh, humpbacks. So only the males sing. Um, and the songs are 10 to 20 minutes long and can be repeated continuously for hours, even over 20 hours. Um, 
And so that's a crazy long time. And they can also be heard from 20 miles or 30 kilometers away, which is insane. But sound does travel better in waters. Uh, but can it's I the- just point out something mm-hmm. that is occurring to me right now about how long that song is going on for? So you know when you get a song stuck in your head? Yeah, it's going to be like that. It's basically like that. It would be awful. <laughs> but, but they... When they're singing, you're not the only one. They, they're, you're not the only one, and there's a purpose for their singing. Uh, I guess that's true. When you have an annoying song in your head, like how I've had I Just Can't Wait to Be King stuck in my head for all of July, <laughs> there's no purpose to that except to keep me awake at night. When humpback males sing, it's to get some. So, um, possibly. Well, possibly. Possibly. <laughs> that's the main reason that they suspect uh, songs are uh, often sung during breeding season, but can be hear- heard year-round, which is why it's confusing. Um, how songs are created um, and why they sing are still in question. We don't know the answer to. There's lots of crazy information of uh, humpback songs changing. Um, there's only uh, all the same, all the males in the same population sing the same song with slight variations, but they change it. And then sometimes humpbacks in a completely different population have the same variation song or something like it's so weird how this happens and how all humpbacks seem around the world seem to end up singing almost the same song um so it's a super crazy thing that's continuously being studied it's been studied for like decades now and we still know very little about it um but it's really cool and we will put a link to some songs um in the show notes indeed one of the things that we have learned is how physically humpbacks sing. And although for all of us listening to this podcast, because we're likely all human beings, unless you got a cat out there that really likes humpback whales, um, it's it seems really strange for us to think about, okay, physically in our body, how do we sing? Because we take it for granted that we all have voice boxes and that they vibrate and that that's how we both speak and sing. But humpback whales don't. And so it was actually pretty cool for scientists to learn how they created the vocals for these sounds because, and this is one of the things that makes it a song characteristically as opposed to vocals, uh, which almost every cetacean vocalizes, but not every cetacean sings. uh, And the way in which the song is produced physically in their body is what kind of characterizes it as well. It's one of the things that characterizes it as a song. So I'm going to tell you very, very briefly how that happens, but because it's kind of better to visualize it, there is another link in the show notes to a video that someone made. I'm just blanking on the name right now, but somebody made a Ted talk about how it happens physically in a humpback whale's body with animation. And it's great. So we'll link to that. But basically, um, they don't have to breathe in order to sing. <laughs> yeah, because they do it underwater where they yeah. don't breathe. Yeah, exactly. So they that's just kind of crazy when you think about how we sing. But um, they have air or oxygen in their lungs. And that is then squeezed over a fold of tissue that vibrates called the u-fold which then sends that air into big sacs called laryngeal i can't pronounce that word (laughs) but it's an inflatable organ that is just there to resonate or to echo sound that then echoes out into the ocean so it's a 
closed system, the air that goes into those laryngeal sacs is recycled back through the U-fold back to the lungs. So that's why they can do it for 20 hours straight. Um, the other thing that characterizes a song as a song is its components. If we have any people who are listening to this podcast who are music nerds, some of these terms will be familiar to you. Uh, but basically, you can break a humpback whale song down into the same technical components that you can break a song by ACDC or Charlotte Church and anyone in between. <laughs> Those are random, random choices. Yep. <laughs> um, so every song, humpback whales included, has a hierarchical structure, which means there are small things that are units, which are moans or whistles or in a human voice sort of notes uh, that then are repeated to form slightly larger things called phrases. And then those phrases are repeated and changed to create themes. Think of the Star Wars theme. Hmm. Um, and all the different characters who have themes in Star Wars, musical themes. And then those themes repeat in a pattern. That is what makes a song, whether it is a human song or a humpback whale song. So they're quite complicated, much more complicated when you kind of, if you ever see what sound looks like, if you can have one of those sort of, even actually even your iPhone can do it when you're recording something like a podcast and you're watching how your voice moves on the screen. Um, it's a lot easier to see these components that way than to just kind of hear them. Mm -hmm. I would just like to say before I get an angry text that the music in Star Wars is not songs because there are no lyrics. They are pieces. Yes. But Thank still, I <laughs> fall under the same definition as humpback songs. Yes. Anyway, Thank now we've covered point. our bases from the actual music nerd who is listening. Yay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, as Lindsay alluded to, the songs that humpbacks sing do... So technically, sorry, I'm going to go back to this. Technically, according to music terminology, a mm -hmm. humpback song would be a piece, wouldn't it? I don't know. They well, use their... It depends if you... Voice. But it's not their voice. Yeah. They don't have a voice box. I don't know. You're going to have to ask the music nerd. But, yeah, but they're communicating more than just... I mean, you communicate with music. Yeah. Even when it doesn't have lyrics. But, like, it, there is potentially some aspect of, like, the same like verbal type communication whatever they have the ability to do yeah i would, right? I would like, call them a song because like if you think of operatic areas or something like yeah. obviously yeah. they're they're usually um words in different languages but you know when ariel yeah. ariel goes <laughs> sorry everyone um that was amazing that i guess would be defined as a as a song because that's She's singing a lyric that you would write down. I have no idea. Um, this is an interesting and this is an interesting discussion that probably will only happen here. Yeah. <laughs> but we would like you to weigh in. If you're a music yeah. nerd and a humpback whale nerd, peace or song, you decide. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, regardless of how you want to uh, term them, they do change, as Lindsay mentioned. And the changes to these songs happen 
both within the population. So each population tends to have their own song, though the song does then kind of travel globally from population to population, which we'll get to in a second. Um, so within a population, the song does change from year to year. Minor changes happen. So those sort of small components, the units, the moans or the whistles may change tone may change order um, phrases are kind of added or changed a little bit or dropped over time but for usually three to five years you will kind of hear the same general song from one population of humpbacks then what happens is a cultural revolution so the best example we have of this because it's actually been documented and as the change was happening is in the Australian population of humpback whales where the feeding grounds for the eastern Australian populations and the western Australian populations are in the same place but those two populations are very distinct and they have different songs. However, since they're coming together at the feeding grounds and the songs are generally sung during the breeding season, but they kind of get sung throughout the rest of the year, just, you know, because you sometimes have a song stuck in your head. Uh, we don't really know why they do it. So they do sometimes sing at the feeding grounds, but not in anywhere the same frequency or number of humpback whales singing. But at those feeding grounds, the eastern population gets to hear what the western population is singing about and then they bring that back to the eastern population i don't know why it doesn't go both ways apparently the west is the trendsetter in this situation um but the eastern population brings it back to their population and their song has completely changed to what the western population was singing so that's the cultural revolution a completely new song though it is much less complex than let's say the five-year-old version of the song they were singing before they all decided to change. And then that song that they've taken from the Western population will get more complex and change slightly over another three to five years before they, again, like what the Western population is doing. Random. Some thoughts on That's why so cool. they are less complex is just because the more complex version of what the Western population is doing is just too hard to learn. So you kind of pick and choose what you like that the West is doing that's easy to remember and bring back to your Eastern breeding grounds and be like, yeah, I, I picked up something new for you, ladies. If that's why they're singing at all. Um, there is an incredible article detailing all of this and that actually kind of came up with a model, uh, like a computer-generated model of how this change occurs based on individuals. Um, it's another, we like to point out when uh, science is free for people to read, so this is another scientific article where you can read the entire thing, not just the abstract, so that's linked in our show notes, uh, and it shows that changes in humpback whale songs have to do with feeding ground size, that will impact how quickly a song changes, the length of the migration route to get back and forth from the feeding ground to your breeding ground. So I guess how long you have to kind of repeat the song in your head before you have to really, really sing it. <laughs> and also the number of populations in, uh, or sorry, the number of individuals in the population. So those three things seem to be, based on this computer model, the most important when it comes to the change in a song. It is a really cool article. I recommend checking it out. Additionally, uh, we what is really, really cool about songs, at least what I thought was really, really cool about songs, is they do change, as we've talked about. 
but vocals from humpback whales don't. And this has also been pro- proven scientifically because in an Alaskan study, they could record very different songs in their humpback populations over the course of 30 years. But for 36 years, their vocals, distinct from their songs, stayed exactly the same. Strange, strange, strange. So then that brings us to why are they singing in the first place? And as we've alluded to, no one actually knows the answer to this because we can't ask them. And it's surprisingly hard to study what they're doing underwater all the time when they are singing. So a lot of people assume that it is to attract a mate because it is only the males that are singing. Though there are some other things we know about humpback whale songs that actually suggest the mating doesn't make any sense for for a reason for them to sing because every single male is singing the same song mm-hmm. and they're often singing when there aren't females around uh there are sometimes when they're singing when females are around but you also just find males practicing all the time so uh, another theory is that it might be a way that we don't understand to transmit information, that all of those moans and whistles and phrases actually mean things. And especially because of how that cultural revolution works, that they're picking up information and transmitting it to each other in the form of a song because it's easy to remember. So it might be something that's actually really important for that information to be transmitted uh it may be a way of marking territory since different populations have different songs uh and i like this one it might also be a way of tracking your friends yeah because if you sing the same song as me then even though we don't see each other very often we're buddies we're in the same population Mm. is it like how we used to sing super friends in costco together (laughs) yes exactly i'm over here find me (laughs) yeah um, a, like really long game of Marco Polo. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like yeah, a twenty-hour-long game of Marco Polo. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, we do know since we have been studying these songs for a long time uh, that shipping noise will impact the duration of the song and also the volume of the song and how many individuals are singing. So as shipping traffic increases in our oceans it is highly possible that humpback whale songs will decrease. We have seen them decrease. Humpbacks reduce and sometimes even stop singing entirely when they hear shipping noise that is over 200 kilometers away from them. So considering their song can only be heard 30 kilometers away, they're obviously very, very sensitive to underwater noise. And that could, since we don't know what the point of these songs are, if it's something that is essential for these populations as shipping increases and shipping noise increases, that can be a really big problem. So uh, one of the things that you can do at home to help specifically with humpback songs is try and buy locally to try and decrease the need for global shipping. But also if you live coastally, and even if you don't figure out how your things are getting to you, like how all of the commercial products that you buy get to your city regardless of where you live, 
and see what those major shipping companies are doing to try and reduce their noise. We live in a coastal city and we do a lot of research uh, into what the port of Vancouver, which is a massive port for things all into North America, is doing to reduce ocean noise and uh, they're working really hard on it. So if there's a way for you to support that effort wherever you live, wherever your things are coming from, get involved. Okay, so now it's time for our fun flipper fact. Yay, fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact, it's fun flipper facts. Today marks the first time that our (laughs) patrons on Patreon got to choose the topic for our fun flipper fact. Yay! And this uh, month's fun flipper fact is all about humpback whales, which is very convenient for us. So thanks so much to our patrons on Patreon. If you want to check out how to support us financially and also get cool perks like getting to vote on the content of our podcast, uh, you can check us out on patreon.com slash whaletales. Nicole is going to share our awesome Fun Flipper fact. Yay! So patrons, since you chose a Fun Flipper fact about humpback whales, but we were already planning on talking about humpback whales a lot, We have a very special Humpback Whale Fun Flipper Flact for you. That's hard to say. Mm -hmm. fast. (laughs) Uh, And it's about the, as Sarah alluded to, strange non-migratory population of humpback whales. This is a very small population of humpback whales that's found in the Arabian Sea. Arabian Sea. If you're like me and geography's hard, I had to look up where the Arabian Sea was because there's a lot of water over there. So specifically, the Arabian Sea is bordered by India on the east, Pakistan and Iran on the north, and then Oman and Yemen on the west, and then the Indian Ocean on the south. So it is a sea, so it's connected to an ocean. Uh, So that's where it is. And the humpbacks that live there have been genetically distinct from the other humpback populations in the Indian Ocean for over 70,000 years. That's a long time. It's a real long time. Really, really long time. And no one really knows why they split off. But what does make them distinct is that they don't go anywhere. They never leave the Arabian Sea. So they do not have an annual migration. They don't have, they do have like breeding grounds versus feeding grounds, but they're not far away and they kind of can breed and feed whenever they want. A small population that lives there, there's thought to be only about a hundred. And the most likely, the most likely theory on why they don't migrate is because in the Arabian Sea, there are massive seasonal upwellings of cold, nutrient-rich water, which means there's lots of food around, but it's also a somewhat sheltered, calm area for mating, calving, and nursing. So you got all your things covered in the Arabian Sea. One other cool thing about the Arabian Sea population is that they sing. Since we were talking about songs earlier, I just wanted to point out that even though they don't migrate and they have all of their needs met in one small space and they're completely isolated from every other humpback whale population, they have been recorded singing and their songs do change. So there you go. So that is your fun flipper fact on the Arabian non-migratory humpback whale population in Jordan. 
And now it's time for our whale tale of the week. Uh, Lindsay has a great one for you. So, Lindsay, do you want to take it away? Yeah. So this is an old story from 2006, way back when, um, in mid-July, when I was doing the Marine Mammal course up in Banfield, um, which is on the west coast of Vancouver Island, for those who don't know. Uh, we were on a four-day expedition uh, up Go for going traveling further north up the coast of Vancouver Island to photograph gray whales, humpback whales, and hopefully killer whales if we saw them. Um, we were with a scientific photographer who was taking photos for a photo ID catalog of gray whales, so we had to stop for every gray whale that we saw. And gray whales are super hard to add to photo ID catalogs properly. Um, they have to get the right side and the left side of their dorsal hump, like of their knuckles, I think that's what they're called. Um, um, and that, so that's annoying. And then you also have to wait for them to fluke. And if you've ever waited for any kind of whale to fluke, it takes forever. Uh, and you have to be in the right position. So you might have to try again and they might half fluke or whatever. So we sat around and waited for gray whales to do stuff. A lot. That sounds so exciting. It was not. Um, a gray whale snotted in my face. And then I almost threw up in his blowhole. Because tit for tat. Um, it's, it's the worst thing. But anyway, that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story is on our last day, we were actually spent three days going up and one day coming back. So we were like, we were up in the New, Shot- New Shatlets, which is for, um, far up the west coast of Vancouver Island. Uh, we got up super early, we were camping, um, and it was an incredible day, even though it was like 15 hours of boat uh, ride. We started, I like got out of the tent and looked out, and there were sea otters there, which from someone who spent a lot of time uh, learning and dis- uh, sharing stories about the uh, reintroduction of sea otters on Vancouver Island, that was a pretty amazing thing. Um, that day we saw humpbacks um harbor porpoises and dolls porpoises uh and gray whales um and there was also a coccoliform bloom which is a blue green algae um which makes the water super green you'll see in the pictures we put up on the show notes uh but it also makes uh animals come closer to shore because the upwellings and the nutrients are all out of whack so we were headed down the coast and we saw this fin flipping out in the air we were like that must be some kind of dolphin um and we got closer to it and it was a mola mola uh which was (laughs) so weird and i you'll see in the link that we put up that i have no photographs of it because i was just like what in the god's name what is this thing (laughs) um and then we saw another one as well and it was super weird and super awesome mola molas are the best um can i share a mola mola fact even though this is a whale podcast and not a fish podcast sure <laughs> mola molas are technically plankton even though they're fish because the <laughs> definition of a plankton is something that can't swim against a current and a mola mola can't swim against current so that makes it a plankton even though it's fish and it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> that's because they're the best further down the coast we saw more small dorsal fins and we got very excited because first we thought we were, they were killer whales which we hadn't seen at all uh, and then we thought they were legs which I still to this day have not seen in the wild and it really bothers me legs being uh, Pacific white-sided dolphins um, 
But they turned out to be Riso's dolphins, which was oh. super weird and really awesome. Um, crazy to look at and uh, see. There's a lot, We have lots of photos I'll put up in the story, but they were super cool. And at that point was when our our prof called on the radio to see when we were coming back. And we're like, we just saw Riso's and a blah, blah, blah. And he's like, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> on our way to Hawaii? Yeah. And I'm like, no, we're fine. I can see land. Like, it'll be fine. We'll be home soon. We were not home soon because uh, by the time we got in view of Long Beach and Ukulet, we were in a crazy humpback soup. Um, so we were going kind of crazy because we were like 40 minutes from land. But we were like five hours on just standing there on the standing, being on the boat uh, with all of these crazy humpbacks. There was a lot of peg slapping. There was, I think, the first breach I've ever seen in the wild, which was pretty amazing. Um, Tons and tons of flukes, of course, all in this like incredibly green water. It was such a weird, crazy experience, Um, but obviously one that has been really special to me uh, since it's been 13 years since and I still it's one of my favorite stories of, I've had with whales um, I just remember going incredibly stir crazy um, walking looking at whales looking at land <laughs> wanting <laughs> never wanting to go to Uculet more in my life and then just getting on the uh, getting back to the marine ma- the science station and like running up the big long hill at Banfield and like telling our prof and our TA about what we had just seen and like it all spilling out and we could barely stand because we were had been on water for so long and just like all of these things we were trying to tell them and they're just like where have you been <laughs> um so it was amazing we never did see killer whales but that's fine because my project was on humpbacks and we got a lot of flute pictures um we made we made our own ID catalog for the animals in Clayquat Sound and we had a lot of fun doing it so that was my story. Yay! Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing, Lindsay. And if you would like to read this and other humpback whale stories, you can always do so on our website at whale-tales.org. There are 203 humpback whale stories there currently. So there will be more by the, by the time this web uh, episode comes out. There will yeah. be more for sure. So, this episode is coming out on the last day of July, but that doesn't mean that Classic Free July, you could just stop and uh, go back to your normal ways. We should, uh, everybody should keep it going all year round with what you've learned, what you've become aware with, um, uh, what the plastic you're using, and uh, just work to continue to reduce your single plastic use uh, and reduce and reuse all your other stuff as well. Um, does anybody have any tips that they learned this Plastic Free July? Um, it's, I guess it wasn't this July, but I have been being more um, organized about it. And that is having refillable bulk containers. So lots of stores um, will let you bring your own clean and like uh, like cleanable containers uh, to use at the to get bulk items. So the one that I go to when you go in, they will write the weight of your empty containers on all your containers. And then when you, so you don't have to like, you're not, it's not costing you extra. And then I go around and fill up all my stuff. Um, I get like pasta, rice, uh, spices are like an amazing deal because you just get as many as you need at that time. Uh, nuts and seeds and all kinds of cool stuff, flour. And I, I like this crazy person because I like 
go there on the bus usually. So I have them all like wrapped in tea towels because they're usually glass jars mostly. And then, so they don't like clank around while I'm walking there or walking to the bus and stuff. And then, so I'm like unwrapping them at the thing and it's fine because it's not that busy. Um, and yeah, it's great. And it's a really good deal. And it's, I, I mean, it is a little bit annoying because it's a bus right away, unlike everywhere else that I do all my grocery shopping. But um, it's usually either on my way to or from visiting friends or family. So um, it's not that bad. And it both makes my pantry really organized. Uh, I don't have any like dodgily sealed up plastic bags of rice or anything that gets like moths or gets moldy or anything. Um, and yeah, and it's also good to reduce the amount of plastic. So and also, I think for me, anyways, it reduces the amount of waste because um, I just buy exactly what I need. So that's been the thing that I've been trying to be more organized with, um, especially this July. But in general, since I moved into a place that actually has enough cupboard space to make it worthwhile. That's awesome, Sarah. Mm-hmm. That's my plastic for anything. Yeah, it's very like I mean, I road to Avonlea, yeah. like those Ooh, old kinds yeah. of. That's the thing I like about grocery it. stores. Yeah. yeah, I like you have yeah. me at. Your pantry looks more organized. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't really because I, it's a small cupboard in there, but it has the potential to look more organized <laughs> once I get better shelving. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will share mine. So my tips all tend to be about raising a child. Uh, soon I'll go back to work and then I may have more exciting things happening. Well, no, sorry. Soon I'll go back to work and then I may have other things going on in my life. <laughs> Um, but I, uh, was very, very excited that this plastic free July and for a number of months leading up to it, I have been able to get over my fear of cloth diapers and have been able to use cloth diapers with my son. So I, when I was pregnant and I was researching cloth versus disposable, I got really, really overwhelmed and I, we have a really old washer and dryer in our house that we know we need to be updated, but they use a lot of water. And so I was really worried about the environmental impact from a water and energy perspective uh, of using cloth diapers and also the mess because life. And I just decided, you know, I was going to focus on every other thing I could to raise a sustainably minded child and in a sustainably minded house, but that I was going to do disposable diapers because I needed one thing in my life to be easy. And then thanks to a friend of ours who basically, not forced, but lovingly gave me (laughs) (laughs) um, some of her cloth diapers from when her daughter was younger and said, look, just try them. They're a lot easier than you think. And then if you don't want them, just give them back and I'll give them to somebody else to try. So she gave me basically a whole starter set of cloth diapers because the cost was also a little bit prohibitive for me. They are Mm. expensive or can be. Especially with newborns when they last like 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, and then again, the washing. Um, And she was right. They are amazing and so, so, so much easier than I thought they were going to be. But if she hadn't given them to me to try, I really don't think that I would have made the commitment to do it. So huge, huge thanks and shout out to a friend, Paula, for doing that for me uh, because I feel really good about it and I've been able to pay it forward as well. So after getting that starter set from our friend, I invested in uh, a few different brands because I'm me and I'm a nerd and I decided I did like cloth diapers. I did. <coughs> Ravenclaw. <coughs> <laughs> 
I did a full-blown, like, spreadsheet test over the course of two weeks into all the different cloth diaper brands that were available to me um, to see which ones worked the best for my son and his fit and his regularity, I guess. <laughs> um, I have that spreadsheet available, and I have shared it with many other parents when we've gotten into talking about diapers, um, because what works best for my son may not be what works best for you, so I have all of the results. If you're interested, I'll share that with you, too. Um, but... I was then able to to share that and also to share some of the diapers I had that weren't working for my son with some other mom friends of mine and and help them see that it's really not so scary because when you look on the internet about it, it can be really overwhelming and very judgy. Like that was really kind of what set me off was that it got very preachy and very judgy very quickly. Uh, whereas when a friend was just talking to me about it and not shoving it down my throat, but actually just saying like, here, just give it a try. If you don't like it, whatever, just, you're, I'm still going to be your friend. <laughs> um, yeah. That really made the difference for me. So hopefully for those of you who are listening who do have kids you give it a shot this is not meant to be preachy or judgy i just went on a trip in july with my son when i know it's plastic free july and i still had to use some disposables because airplanes are hard um so i totally understand but it's the point of plastic free july is doing your best Mm -hmm. so that's what i'm trying to do and you do what works for you which is also my mantra for parenthood you do what works for you (laughs) yeah and just on a very similar note this isn't my tip but just something to add is uh judgy internet people um the same goes for plastic free july when you're looking into what kind of sanitary items if uh, feminine products you would like to use as yourself uh i was judged super harshly as a student in university and that's obviously stayed with me for many years now um, from a person who knew nothing about my needs. Um, and so it's just something to think about when you're thinking about your Plastic Free July, about what you can do to reduce your impact from that standpoint, if it's possible. So there's lots of different options. If you would like to talk to us, we have a variety of different things that we use across the three of us. Um, and we'd be happy to share in a private message. Um, anyway, I think the thing, the other thing I wanted to think uh, talk about from this Plastic Free July is a little bit weird and kind of goes hand in hand with what Nicole was saying about other energy waste and also with shipping and vessel noise is that I was really um, planning on looking into getting silk or glass floss because floss is made of plastic. Um, And I like to floss because I got into the habit, which you should too. Everybody floss. Um, (laughs) But it's plastic and it comes in a plastic container. However, the best glass or silk floss is super expensive um there's a bunch of different rates and some of it comes from really far away uh like new zealand which seems very bass backwards to me is getting plastic free floss shipped to me from new zealand is definitely more wasteful than going across the street by foot and buying plastic floss so this is something to think about when it comes to plastic items when it comes to shipping anything versus going to buy it and when it comes also to shipping something rush um and stuff because when stuff is shipped on rush it goes by itself in a truck as opposed to normal shipping when the truck is full um so these are all stuff to think about it's not just about plastic especially as we move out of plastic free july it's about reducing your waste everywhere 
if you can walk across the street to buy something that's plastic, it's probably going to be less waste, especially oil waste. Like, you know, like a ship bringing my floss from New Zealand is also producing oil waste that the plastic that my floss is in is less. Um, so it's less money for everybody. It's less time. And so it might just be the better deal. Like, this is the thing. Pl- living plastic-free is impossible. Like, let's just deal with that um, in 2019. So it's reducing what you can and reducing not just plastic, reducing all of your waste, reducing your energy waste, reducing any kind of waste, reusing your stuff, fixing clothes, all of that kind of stuff is what you should be looking at um, in whatever way you can. No judging. Um, so I think that that is probably an appropriate place for us to end this episode. <laughs> As always, we do have all of these tips and more on our What You Can Do page, and that link is in our show notes. Plus, you can find it on our website under Tales of Saving Whales, where you can also find other ideas that people are doing to try and help save whales and the world. Um, Yeah. Yeah, um, (laughs) (laughs) You can also find all the links to subscribe to our podcast on the left-hand side of our website, um, and you, or you can subscribe through your podcast catcher of choice, um, or you can just go directly to our website um, and listen. Other exciting items on our website include a link to our merchandise. You can find us on Redbubble. We've got awesome shirts, mugs, stickers, bags, and more. Although, find some friends and ship it all together mm-hmm. to save plastic and shipping True, costs. true, true. Yes. Uh, if you like us, and what will... <laughs> How could you not after this? <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, but more so if you enjoy this podcast and you like what we do both on the podcast and at whale tales uh please consider supporting us and what we're doing by heading over to our patreon page by becoming a patron you get to vote in polls that decide on what we talk about thanks again to patrons for syncing up mentally with us Mm -hmm. this week that was (laughs) awesome Uh, but even if it doesn't, we will still honor what the patrons vote on for our poll for our fun flipper facts, and we'll be expanding what our patrons uh, get to help us decide with soon. Plus, we'll give you shoutouts on social media, and uh, it's just really, it's really, really wonderful to see how much we have impacted your lives, and it it gives us warm fuzzies. So thank you very, very much. Mm-hmm. And if you can't support us on Patreon, you could still help us have warm fuzzies by uh, rating and reviewing us on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast and also lets us know what you think of us and if we talk too much about Disney and floss, for example. <laughs> Maybe just a little. <laughs> just a little. You can also follow us on social media at whaletales.org and you can search for podcast stuff by using the hashtag whaletalespodcast. Last but definitely not least, because it's the heart of what we do at Whale Tales, if you have a cetacean story to share, please share it. It's why we got started with this website and then this podcast to begin with. We absolutely love reading your stories. So if you have a story that is special to you, even if you don't know if it's going to be special to other people, I promise you it'll be special to us. And how would they go about telling us about it there, Nick? Any way they want. (laughs) You most easily could share it on social media. uh, And you could also go to our website and press the big share button there. Or, you know, just call us. Tell us. Uh, so if that was a lot of information to take in, which of course it is, uh, don't worry. You can find the links to everything we just talked about on our website, whale-tales.orgs. 
tales like the stories, not like the animals. Uh, plus, you can pursue our library of almost 600 uh, whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. Thanks again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia that Nicole has researched for us. Yay! Thanks, everybody, and have a whaley great day!